We're continuing in Romans 13. Uh, what I wanted to do is look back a little bit at Romans 12 and 13. I want to show you uh, the law embedded here. And we're starting with the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment is the longest one in the Westminster Larger Catechism. It has the most to talk about. Why is that? Most of life is figuring out how you're supposed to interact with other people. And other people have different stations. And we don't think about that very much as Americans. And so we need to get over that. And we need to adopt what the Bible has to say rather than what our American culture has to say. And so the fifth commandment is something that's dominating this text. So look at, look at what I've got for you on the first two pages. I guess for you it's kind of like the first page and you flip it over and you'll see some more. Um, so the underline is stuff that's in the context of the fifth commandment. It's, it's really applying these things to the fifth commandment. The highlight is this is the fifth commandment direct. So do you see how much, we're going to read through it so you can judge that claim, okay? But do you see how much the fifth commandment dominates these two chapters? So we're talking about the fifth commandment dominating this. Now, the first 11 chapters focused on the first table of the law in the sense that there was doctrine about God so that we could know and acknowledge him. There's stuff about idolatry and how we have conceptual idols that make us so that we're responsible before God. And then there's a discussion of kind of the Jews misusing the signs of the covenant and misusing the preaching of the word. And so they're taking the Lord's name in vain. And so naturally they're misusing their time, which is a violation of the fourth commandment. They're not glorifying God with their time as they ought to. And so those four commandments are implicit and underlying all of those first 11 chapters. And very explicitly, the first and second and third commandments are dealt with in the first three chapters. So we get here, we get to the fifth commandment, and that's what's dominating the text. So we're going to look at these, uh, these verses. And I'm sorry, I wrote up there that this is Romans 13, verses 1 through 14. I failed to fix that. It's, uh, it's obviously chapters 12 and 13 there. So I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now here we, we move into the fifth commandment. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now that's, that's also the second commandment, right? The idea that you need to be able to prove, the regulated principle. But the liberty of conscience of the Christian against the commandments and doctrines of men is rooted in this idea of proving. And so we immediately move into context of it, because look at what follows. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Okay? Know your place. That's what Paul is saying. And so that's fifth commandment. But to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. There's a relationship to each other. Fifth commandment, relative duties. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy according to the faith. According to the analogy of faith. It's in proportion to our faith is the translation. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. These are all body duties. These are all things we do toward each other, right? 
And so this is all fifth commandment application. We have to examine ourselves, examine other people, use our gifts as an appropriate place to use them, and that requires us to evaluate ourselves properly, which is what Paul started with. Nine, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. That's general, right? But it's in the context of fifth commandment stuff. Verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. Fifth commandment equals not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit. Earlier on, it talked about leading with diligence. There's the immediate context. The diligence is talking about in leading. And the fervency um, is also in that context as well. But there's obviously a general application of that beyond that. But that's the context. So then we go, serving the Lord. Well, you should use that stuff in a manner as to glorify God, a doxological focus. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints. Now, distributing to the needs of the saints, is that eighth commandment or fifth commandment or both? It's both. Given to hospitality. You could argue that's eighth commandment as well, but hospitality is about doing ministry and blessing each other. It's about the relational aspect. It's the context primarily in which ministry occurs. If there's not more hours of hospitality ministry occurring in this church than pulpit ministry, I've failed. Because it's not all supposed to be me, right? You're all supposed to be hospitable. There's a lot of people who can be hospitable. If you're not being hospitable to each other and exchanging hospitality without necessarily extending an invitation to me, by the way, I love it, thanks, I appreciate it, but you're welcome to do so without me as well. And that, lots of that should be happening. Lots of that should be happening. And so, given to hospitality, if you're not ministering to each other in the context of hospitality with more man hours than I'm giving to you in the pulpit or preparing to preach in a given week, that's a problem. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Those are easily relatable to the fifth commandment. And maybe they are principally. I didn't highlight them because I'm trying to give the benefit of the doubt to me over applying the fifth commandment here. But I think it's pretty clear that you can find ways to connect that to the fifth commandment and say that's how you're dealing with each other in terms of honoring. But they're obviously also the tenth commandment. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Okay, Not setting your mind on too high of things, like coveting office or whatever, but associated with the humble, spending time with people who are of lower station. This is about relating to each other based upon station. Repay no one evil for evil. Why? Because vengeance is the Lord's, and he's given it to the magistrate. Fifth commandment. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. Conflict resolution based upon station. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, the magistrate, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And immediately goes into the doctrine of the magistracy. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he's God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Verse 5. Therefore, you must be subject 
not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We just drank a bottle of whiskey of Fifth Commandment right there, right? That was distill it, Fifth Commandment right there. Eight, owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. The context is talking about owing taxes, customs, fear, honor, right? So that's the owing that's being talked about. We spent time on that last time. It's not principally about debt as it is normally applied to. Nine, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day at his hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. These chapters are dominated by the fifth commandment. So then the rest of the law gets pointed to, and then chapter 14 goes back into engaging with the first table. So my intention is to start with you on the second table here and to use the larger catechism to point you to these things and to ask you to consider this carefully. And I, one of the reasons I preach on the fifth commandment a lot is because the fifth commandment is a serious concern of the Bible a lot. The other reason is because it's our sin. The fifth commandment is our culture's sin. We swim in a hatred of honor. We swim in it. So until we identify what honor is, which, let's be real, if you had to write an essay on how to give honoring speech and how to give honoring behavior, you'd probably have some points where you had to stop for a while and think about it, right? This isn't something that just flows out of us like, I know what honoring speech looks like. I could explain how to honor with speech. We know what dishonoring speech looks like, kind of, right? And so we avoid that to some extent. And the, the, the extent to which we honor is typically something like, Let's not say things that are dishonoring. But honoring speech is something that we sneer at. We read letters written by people from every other century ever dealing with dignitaries, and we feel like those letters are silly. We read the salutations that honor people, and we go, when does this end? We speed read them, right? We, we look for when do we get to the content that's part of the content. That's part of the content. Right, so, we are a people of unclean lips, and we individually have unclean lips, and we need to get honor in our bones. Right? We need to get honor to be habitual. So, I'm moving into the doctrine section to deal with the fifth commandment. So we, I went through these texts and talked about them as they individually applied. And I want to focus on the duty of honor here. So let's think about the honor by station. So what's the, the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment, question, we're on page three. 
123. Question 123. The fifth commandment is, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God gives you. Okay, 124. Who are meant by father and mother? Right, so all superiors in age and gifts, and especially such as God, by his ordinance, has put over us in the place of authority, whether in the family, the church, or the commonwealth. Now, there are proof texts down there. You'll notice proof texts at 4 and 5 and 6. Those are verses that use words like father in reference to people who are in authority in those stations. Okay, so we as Protestants, here's our reaction when we hear somebody use the word father in reference to anybody except for their like, household dad. Right? We go, that's papist. And here's how it can become papist. We are not to call any man father. That's what Jesus said, right? So how do we reconcile this? We don't call anybody father in the sense that nobody can give spiritual life except for God. So don't pretend like your teacher is the one who illuminated your mind. The teacher brought to you outward forms. They brought you the oracles of God. And then the spiritual life was given to you by the work of God, by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to illuminate your mind. And so you must differentiate the outward means from the effectual cause. And if you don't differentiate, you make the work of the minister effective by the working, or as the Romanists would say, ex opere operato, that the working of the work causes that regeneration. The doctrine of Rome is to call priests father and to say that if they baptize a person, that person is regenerate. So that is the error. That's the specific error. And the fact that they call these priests father is inappropriate. Now, I'm not asking you to call me father. Please do not. Please, please don't do it. Okay? Unless you're my kids. Please do. So, but what I'm saying is, these verses link together the fifth commandment with officers of the church and state. That's what the linguistic connection is about. They are fathers in the sense of being superiors. And you can see this even with gifting, right? You look back in Genesis and it talks about the, the descendants of Lamech and how they are the fathers, the one who played music and of the metal workers and the whatever. So you can see that with gifting as well. Okay? So the Westminster Standards are not just pulling this stuff out of the air. These are biblical doctrines. So superiors in age, gifting, and those who have a superiority of station, especially station in a covenant institution, household, church, state. So I have some bullet points under here. Okay? In every relationship, point one, you need to be aware of how you are an inferior, equal, or superior as you come to know the person more fully. We don't think in those terms. It's not our natural inclination, but we need to be looking for that. How am I an inferior? How am I equal? How am I superior? Now, I put it in that order on purpose because we want to look for the ways that we're superior. So I'm asking you to try to program your habit to where you look for, how am I inferior? How is this person better than me? And that will help us to see how we can honor them above ourselves. How is this person better than me? I guarantee you, there's a way in which every single one of you is better than me. 
So looking for the gifting, looking for the way in which someone is better, looking for the ways in which you're equals, so that you make sure to not usurp. So you look for how to not usurp. And looking for the ways in which you are the superior, so that you don't neglect your duties. Okay? How is this person superior? So I can honor them. How is this person my equal? So I don't usurp. How is this person under me as an inferior in some way so that I can serve and not neglect? Two, we are to operate off of station first because station is the easiest to kind of determine. If you don't know anybody at all, then, you know, is their hair grayer than yours? Okay. Then you can figure out if they have a station. Okay. But the idea that station is sort of the thing that, that dominates the honor structure and then age, and then gift. If you're way more gifted than somebody else, they have gray hair and you don't, you stand when they come in. They don't stand when you come in. I don't care how gifted you are. Unless you've got station, right? And somebody recognize you and put you into an authority position. So we're operating off of station and then age. And then as there's evidence or testimony, you look for gifting. And we start giving honor to those giftings as appropriate and deferring to them where appropriate. So gifting does not give excuse to dishonor station or age. Station is above age in outward shows of honor. I just explained that. So, you know, uh, basically, when, you know, for example, let's say you employ somebody who is older than you. Which one stands when the other one comes in the room? Right, well, obviously, the servant would stand even if they're older, because of the station in the household. So you have station controls the other one. So station is the dominant honor controller. Then you have age, and then you have gifting. And there's no obligation to stand for people who are more gifted than you. When you look at the basis for station, point six, gifting and age together are the basis of station. You can't be a pastor unless you're 30 or older. And you can't be a pastor unless you have sufficient gifting, the character giftings and the skill giftings. Those two are what you're looking for to put a person into station. If the person doesn't have those two anymore, typically you don't get younger, but you can lose qualifications. Right? So if I lose qualification, it's your job to remove me if I haven't removed myself first. By the way, just a general note, a very valuable way of evaluating this church power structure, if you're looking at a church, is to ask, who has the power to fire the pastor? That's very revealing of the power structure of a church. So in our church, the heads of household can vote to remove an officer. Also, the officers can vote to remove that officer. Either one can remove, takes both to put them in. Slow to hire, quick to fire. Applies to pastors too. Okay? Now, seven, holders of station may and in some cases ought to be removed. Just talking about that. This is a type of dishonor. It's lawful dishonor. It's, it's dishonoring in a way that honors the Lord. 
you would dishonor the Lord if you didn't remove someone from a station in some cases. Eight, dishonor should always be performed for the glory of God. That's the focus on the glory, right? The doxological focus. It should be done for the good of the covenant institution, for the better functioning by the appointed means. It's a portion that's a typo. By the appointed means for the appointed end. Right? So we, we use the law order that God has given and we do that to accomplish the goal. The well-being of those under the authority. Okay, so you remove oppression or incompetence. Okay? Now, I, it's possible, but I think unlikely, that I'm going to become your oppressor. It's reasonably probable that before I die, I will become incompetent. So, when I'm incompetent, if I don't remove myself, you should remove me. You do it gently. You try to talk to me first and encourage me to retire, right? But that's real. Oppression and incompetence are the reasons you would remove an officer. Now, it can also be for the good of the person in office because if you stay in office when you're not in repentant sin or when you've committed a sin that violates the qualifications, then that person needs to be humbled and it's for their good. I'm having nightmares right now as I'm standing here of this being played back to me. Oops. So, well, you said, all right. But that's the Word of God. Why are superiors styled father and mother? We already talked about that a little bit, but there's a motivational purpose. Okay, this is, uh, I have the bold there. Principally, it's to teach superiors and their duties towards their inferiors. Like to be loving, tender, as is appropriate for their station, like natural parents. It's also to make it so that inferiors are more willing and cheerful in performing their duties as though they were to their parents. So that language is intentional. It's, it's God using associative thinking to cause us to feel better about it. All right, 126. What's the general scope of the fifth commandment? The general scope of the fifth commandment is the performance of those duties which are, we mutually owe in our several relations as inferiors, superiors, or equals. So our relations. So I already talked about the fact that it's very important you identify what your relationship is. Okay, so here's a schema, here's a grid that I, as soon as I printed, I went, no, why didn't I put this in there? Okay, so here, I'm, that's the, when I say no, why didn't I put this in there? This would be really helpful to you if you wrote this down. Okay, so the four ways of thinking about your relationship are the covenant institutions. Okay, so here's the four words. Individual, household, church, state. Hopefully that's wrote to you right now. Individual, household, church, state. Those are the covenant institutions. So as an individual, you are just. You are just. You're only. You're always a peer. Now, that's in station. No individual, as a result of their individuality, has a right to rule another man. Period. All authority is delegated. Now, as an individual, you might have greater gifting, and you might be older, 
And so there's a certain sort of honor that's owed for that. But not obedience. Okay, so gifting and age are the things that are used there. Notice I didn't say sex. Men and women, as men and women, don't have an authority relationship. They're equals. There's a heresy out there that says it's the nature of manhood and the nature of womanhood that makes it so that women are supposed to submit to men. That is a lie from the pit of hell made to, made to make biblical patriarchy look bad. Okay, It is rooted in the idea that authority only comes from a difference of nature. If that is the case, the father is superior to the son and to the spirit because he's superior in nature. That is not the case. The father is superior to the son and to the Holy Spirit in covenant. It's by agreement. The ontological trinity is equal. The economic trinity has different stations. Man ontologically is equal, male and female, and have different stations. In the household, church, and state, there are limits on what women are allowed to do. Men are called to be fathers and husbands and the master of the home. Men are called to be pastors and deacons. Men are called to be civil magistrates. So as individuals, it's gifting and age that have honor associated with them. In the household, in marriage, the wife submits to the husband and children submit to parents. Children are not ontologically inferior to their parents. When they leave the household, they no longer have to obey. They have to honor. That honor does not include obedience. Okay, so I gave you the four institutions, right? You think about the church and the state, those are more obvious. I'm not going to expand on those as much right now. Individual, household, church, state. When you're thinking about how to apply the fifth commandment to these, here's the second grid. Prophet, priest, king. As an individual, how are you serving your brother with prophetic, priestly, or kingly giftings? In your household, how are you serving with your prophetic, priestly, and kingly giftings? In the church, how are you serving with your prophetic, priestly, and kingly giftings? In the state, how are you serving with your prophetic, priestly, and kingly giftings? If you understand those three offices of Christ, you understand much better what service is supposed to look like. You'll have a much less muddled view of service. So as a reminder, a prophet teaches and corrects. You know how you serve as a prophet under somebody else's authority who has stuff to teach you? You listen to get that doctrine. And you heed correction. That's prophetic. So you're using your understanding, your thinking to understand what's being taught, and you're searching the scriptures to see if it's so. Right now, you are sitting under the prophetic gifting of my teaching. I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. But I do have a teaching gift. And that's why you're here, to some extent. So I'm teaching you from the word, and you're supposed to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Your job is to judge what I am saying. And if it is wrong, first heads of households, your job is to question it and then rebuke it. 
So you're exercising prophetic gifting in judging what's taught. Now, priestly has to do with the idea of seeking to pray for blessing, pray for the gain of the things for the person. And there's this guarding the holiness aspect, binding or cleaving to the other person carefully in the covenant relationship and guarding the boundaries from defilement in the covenant. That's the priestly work. The maintaining of those relationships. So, the priestly work, you can self-sacrificially serve another, you can gratefully receive the sacrifice of another, and then you honor them for it. You can pray and bless, and the other person can pray. Right? So, the priestly work goes both ways, whether there's an inferiority or a superiority in some way. And then the kingly, providing and protecting, helping in the provision, or at least not undermining it, being grateful for it, accepting the protection, being grateful for it, supporting it. If I tell my children to not run into the street, that's me being kingly, trying to protect them. If they run out into the street, they are being rebellious in a kingly way. If they obey and stop and don't run into the street, they are being kingly by gratefully accepting that protection. Now, where's the most likely place in our culture for for protection to not be gratefully received? Ladies, how gratefully do you accept the protection of your fathers when they order you to do something and from your husbands when they order you to do something for your protection? That protection should be gratefully received. Supporting it. And then, you know, if you're a husband and a wife working together as father and mother over children, you are working together to protect there. And the children need to gratefully receive. So the four institutions, you should memorize those and you should use them as a grid for thinking about duties. Individual, household, church, and state. Those are established by the Lord God Almighty or the basic ordering of society in the fifth commandment. Being a prophetic priestly or kingly person in the use of your gifts in those relationships. Those are the three offices of Christ. Those words are so often, I mean, go to Bible Gateway, search for king, tell me how many results you find. Search for priest, tell me how many results you find. Search for prophet, tell me how many results you find. Not even adding to that evangelist or teacher or apostle, right? There's so many focused offices on revelatory gifting, right? These, these three offices are mentioned so many times in the Bible. They're a theme, And they dominate the way you think about relationships and duties that are interpersonal. The four institutions and those three offices help you to think about your duties toward other people and how you can serve them and accept their service. So the several relations as inferiors, superiors, or equals. Now, 127. What's the honor that inferiors are to their superiors? This starts here because if you're not supporting a superior, their leadership's just not going to work. If you're not supporting a superior, their leadership's just not going to work. You know, what do you call a leader without any followers? Not a leader. So, the honor that inferiors are to their superiors. Now, you're careful who you follow, right? How much do I emphasize to you how to fight off wolves? How many times have I told you how you need to keep me in check? How many times have I told you you have the power to remove me? Right? These are things that I emphasize regularly. 
that's burden. It's burden on me. It's not a fun thing to ask everybody to look at me real closely and see if you should fire me, right? It's not a fun thing. So why do it? Because it's important and it's trained behavior that will help you in terms of picking other officers and it has to be done or else I will be worse off because my pride won't go checked, right? And in addition to that, in addition to that, that emphasizes the rareness and value of somebody who's fit for office, right? It's a, it's a double-edged sword. I'm making life more difficult for myself, but I'm also emphasizing to you the value of the service I'm trying to provide for you, which comes from the grace of God and is not of my own origin. Right? I don't have the power to teach effectively. I don't have the power to know the scriptures, but God gives those things. People who are fit for leadership are rare and valuable. And so inferiors ought to show them due reverence, ought to pray for them and thank God for them, ought to imitate them where it's appropriate, ought to willingly obey, ought to give due submission, ought to be faithful, loyal to them, ought to defend them and their authority, ought to maintain them and their authority, ought to bear with their infirmities and cover them in love. If I haven't embarrassed myself in front of you, I haven't spent much time with you. Right? There are many things. If you let's be real, the people who are most prominent are the most fun to tell embarrassing stories about, right? So you can easily undermine. You know, the more prominent you become, you know, a, little, a fly in the ointment, right? A small, a small thing makes it so that you can become a laughing stock. So. If you don't seek to cover me with love, I'm not going to be very effective in service for very long. I have feet of clay, like enormous feet of clay, like 90% clay. So I have weaknesses, and if you don't bear with my weaknesses and help to bear them up and help me to work to do the things that I'm weak in, I'm not going to be very effective, and I'm not going to last very long. We're not going to get a whole lot done. We'll build something for it to collapse. That's why the multiplicity of elders, the plurality of elders, is such an important thing. So, covering in love and bearing with infirmities. Now, think about that with your fathers and husbands. Cover them in love, bear with their infirmities. Employers that are Christian especially. Cover them in love. Bear with their infirmities. Now, I'm going to go back to the beginning here. It's a call for reverence. What's reverence? Reverence is respect, right, honor, and fear. Respect and fear. Now, we're supposed to fear authorities not in the sense of just being afraid of them as persons, like they growl, right? We're supposed to fear them in terms of their office, that we have a healthy fear for the divine ordinance of their office and for the giftings they have and the law of God for the respect of things like age. Now, 
fear and respect. How do you apply that to the heart? You think on the good, and you try to avoid thinking on the bad. You only think on the bad when there's a duty to do so, to bring the person that thing with honorable speech. You seek to have honorable speech when you're bringing it. Now, one of the glorious things about biblical conflict resolution with the four promises of forgiveness, right? You're promising not to dwell on the thing. You're promising not to use it to hurt somebody else. You're promising to not let it break the fellowship between you. You're, you're promising to not bring it up again unless there's a duty, right? All of those things, you're only doing those things if there's a duty. So they'll have the caveat of unless there's a duty to do so. That's a formula for forgetting. You don't forget right away, but it fades from memory. And so if you try to apply the four promises of forgiveness when you've seen a failure of a superior after they repent of it, then you will find that those things kind of dissolve away. And the forgiveness becomes very easy after a while. Forgiving is not forgetting, but forgiving biblically encourages forgetting. Honoring with word. Titles, honorable speech, courteousness, making clear when you're asking versus telling, giving way to the honored one to speak. Right? You read the book of Job? Is it Elihu who's the one who's at the end kind of saying, I thought it was appropriate for age to speak first, so I kept my mouth shut. Now I'm going to speak. He waited for a long time. Job's a pretty long book. So, Sir, ma'am, pastor, mom, mother, dad, father, mister, missus, miss. Those are intentional efforts to honor. Those are intentional efforts to honor. In America, everybody's on a first name basis. Right? In America, everybody's on a first name basis. Titles are a way of showing honor. Now, I think you can over title. I cringe every time I hear somebody called Reverend. I do. Now I can get it. You know, you can say in a certain way, okay, I'm trying to fear and honor that. Okay. You know, why bishop over elder or pastor? Okay. So there there are there are there are ways of trying to over honor. Um, is doctor a title in the church? Well you could be a teacher, but is it a separate office from elder or pastor? Is there a separate ordination? Okay, so the, those are the kinds of things you're looking for ways to honor that are legitimate. Um, when you're asking, you know, may I say please, thank when people give you things. You know, would you versus could you? You know the difference between that? That's a subtle one, but it's, it's real. Would you is, you know, if you're willing. Could you is if you're able. Could you use for somebody who's under your authority? Right. Are you able to do this? Because if you are, then do it. That's what that's saying. Okay. Small things. Nobody should blow up about it or whatever. But if you make intentional efforts to do these things, that's going to train you to think honorably. Right. The, how we speak, words matter. Idle words matter. Words matter. And when you train your speech, you are training your thought. Speech are, is tags of thought. And how you train yourself to speak, you're training yourself to honor. You're tempted right now to think that all of these things are a bit much. 
Sir, ma'am, pastor, mom, mother, dad, father, Mr., Mrs., Miss. May I please, thank you, would you versus could you? That's the American in you. You squeeze, get it out. There's lots of good things about America. Lots of good American traits. We don't have nobility. Thank God. Okay? People having special bloodlines, not legitimate. Protestants destroy that. Okay? That's a great thing. Now, we threw the baby out some, but not using titles. That's not the original American way. Okay? There's honor and respect. But modern America, that's where we are. Behavior, actions of honor, standing for the gray head or an officer of an institution, walking in order, right? You've seen movies where there's like an order that people walk into a door. Here's the order. It was the gray haired went in first. Why? Because outside is less pleasant than inside normally. And you're saying this person, the gray head, should be honored. And also because they're less likely to be physically strong to go inside first followed by the married because you've got a man attending to his wife and you're caring about that woman, followed by the women who are single, followed by the men. Now this is in safe and orderly institutions like Protestant nations. That's where that happened. You know what happens? You know what Christian men do in nations that are less safe? They walk in first. Do you know why they walk in first? Because the idea is they're putting themselves in danger. They're walking through the corridor. They're walking through the door. They're going through the place where they're more likely to be ambushed. And if they're attacked, it's opportunity for the women and children to run. Okay, so is there a prescribed order? No, the prescribed order is do what would be honoring, which is if it's safe, you're caring about the comfort. And if you're concerned about safety, you're caring about the safety. So we do the exact same thing again. Protestant countries do the exact same thing in the reverse order when walking by a street. The guys that walked in the door last or the guys that stood outermost to the street? So that one we tend to have more of, right? If you're a man and you're walking by a busy street and the woman is closer to the street than you are, you probably start to feel a little bit uneasy. And you go, I need to switch places here. Also, if you've got kids, you probably feel that way. Okay? That is a protective instinct, and it's good. The more intentional these things are, and I'm not saying I have all of these things well instituted in my home, the walking through the door thing, I definitely don't have that. The walking by the street thing, I do. I have not been intentional enough yet. I have not put the time into it to deal with that walking inside thing. You might think that's silly. You might think it's frivolous. These are the kinds of thoughtful applications of the law of God that are the details of a Christian culture. Or we can just say, it doesn't really matter. Let's not honor each other, and we'll never honor each other. We just won't. Because if we don't do it out of habit, we're not going to do it. We're not, if we're not training ourselves to honor on a regular basis, we're not going to do it. It's a lot easier when you train your children to do it. They don't have to habituate themselves as adults. So, the ways of honoring can include Material blessing, paying for service, prayer, gifts to improve tools for the service or the honor of the station or person. You have all been kind as a church in providing me with the materials budget that I've been able to use to buy books and commentaries or whatever. That's a part of that uh, providing of money for the performance of the station. So 
little signs of honor. D, habituation, intentional thinking about honor. Oh, and by the way, look at, look at the footnote I have for the standing. Where am I getting this, right? Leviticus 19.32. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the Lord. Now, the verse after that is about not abusing strangers in the land. I don't think either of those are ceremonial laws that are abrogated. Those are things about the nature of human beings. These are things that are moral law. We honored the older. We are careful about those who are likely to be oppressed to not oppress them. Those are things we are commanded to do. So, honoring. Prayer and thanksgiving. So, intentional effort to pray for it. We, 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 have this, we pray regularly about our magistrates in the public prayer. Um, praying for... I would encourage you, as families, to pray regularly for your church officers. Right now it's singular, so yay for me. Get lots of prayer for a while. I can use it. If there are things to give thanks for, give thanks for them. The things that I do well, imitate them. If I have virtues or graces, imitate them. As far as I exemplify Christ, follow my example. My failings, Bear with me. Please bring them to my attention. Help me to grow. Cover them in love. You cannot cover in love things that are criminal. You cannot cover in love things that are public. Um, so, things that are unrepentant, you bring them to my attention and I refuse the clear teaching of Scripture. That's something you've got to keep going on. You might choose to delay that to deal with something else first, if there's a more egregious thing. Willing obedience. If I teach you something out of the Word of God, show you this is the teaching of God, or if I call you to assemble, and it's a lawful calling, is there willing obedience and submission? But what about fidelity, defense, and maintenance of the person in authority? By the way, again, all this applies down, but um, in terms of heads of house, in terms of husbands, in terms of parents over children, employees and employers, right? These are things that are owed. They're different according to the types of stations, right? You, you think about the kinds of, um, of things that are supposed to be supposed to be done. It differs by station. And I'm sorry. I, one last thing. I need to jump back up to D on D Roman numeral two. Okay, you can make little habitual intentional signs of honor, and you you can do them hypocritically, right? This is kind of what everybody says. It's like, well, I don't want to do it hypocritically. Right? All right. The solution is not to cast off forms of honor. The solution is to stop doing them hypocritically. Right? So let's do the forms of honor and get rid of the hypocrisy, not keep the hate and get rid of the forms. And this is this is often this is often the response to various duties of piety. You know. I don't want to do this or that or the other thing and do it hypocritically. Don't do it hypocritically. Do it. Do the outward thing and seek to get your inward man right by repenting. The outward form is a callback to get your soul in order. Don't drop the callback. So, fidelity to the person and authority. 
Okay, so the person, I'm going to keep using myself as an example because it makes everybody uncomfortable. It's great. So I am a guy. And you know me. I also hold an office, right? So pastoral office. You owe respect to my office. You owe a loyalty to my office because it's your church office. It's Christ's church office. Me, if I'm fit for the office, you owe a personal fidelity or loyalty to me as a person who's serving in that capacity. And so there's my service that earns some loyalty. And then there's the office which Christ earned the loyalty for. So you can be like, well, yeah, you know, I want to respect the pastor, so I'm going to obey it. But sure, that guy is the worst. I roll. Right? That's the office, but then not me. And then you're kind of undermining the office because, like, you know, losers like that guy fill that kind of office. And that really does bring dishonor because think about it. Who, how many kids do you know that are like, you know what would be awesome? If I grow up, if I get to be a pastor, because pastors are manly and competent, and they get the job done, and they're just making progress. Right? Like, that is not our cultural view of the pastorate. Our cultural view of the pastorate is, these are essentially fem- effeminate men who don't really close stuff out, but kind of paper over things. That's the cultural view. Those of you who went to a church that was not that way are looking at me askance, but that's what most American Protestant churches are like. So that, that reality, how we deal with what kinds of men are there and the fidelity to them is something that affects the capacity to fulfill the office. That's true, that's true for fathers and husbands. That's true for employers as well. You know, people talk about how the deep state was something that Donald Trump should not have talked about. They'll say, you know, the deep state, that's a conspiracy theory. The deep state exists in every organization. If you have worked at like a Target with 10 employees, there's a deep state in that Target. Like five of the employees have been there a long time, and they conspire against the manager to not do whatever the management initiative is. And they're like, this thing is stupid. This is going to blow over. Any organization that has a group of people that have been there longer than their manager has a deep state. Okay, so the idea that the NSA and the FBI and the State Department and the Department of Energy and Education weren't intentionally, aggressively disobeying things that President Donald J. Trump told them to do is a laughable thing that only the most incompetent of people managers could believe. Right. So the reality that there is a deep state type of behavior in organizations, if you don't respect a leader, deep state type behavior happens. The disregarding and ignoring of leadership. So layering in fidelity to the person and the authority of that office. The defense of the person and their authority. Okay, against slander, against physical attack. Okay, I get slandered a lot. I like to think because it's so charming. That's what I think is the reason. I get slandered a lot. Legalistic. Antinomian, because of my view of the gospel, right? So you get both. It's fun, right? So, you know, apply the law in exhaustive detail. And then justifications by grace alone, and I really mean it, by faith alone, not attaching anything else, just believing the doctrine. Antinomian, get called that, okay? This idea that this is 
you know, sort of a eliminating of the law. So I, I get both. I enjoy it. But this sort of view that there's slander that's going to occur from the world and from people who are enemies within the church or within the pseudo-church. Most of the churches in the valley are not lawful assemblies. If it's not Calvinistic, it does not have the gospel right, period. That eliminates most of them. Romanist institutions, Eastern Orthodoxy, certainly Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Arminians are the overwhelming evangelical sphere. Those are not legitimate churches. They are denying justification by grace alone by making grace not the alone effectual cause of salvation. They're not. They're attacking the gospel. So that is going to, by its very nature, that kind of a claim is going to result in attack. Now, the attack is generally going to be about the doctrine. And I'm fine with that. But it's your job to defend the doctrine too. And if you hear me being slandered because of the doctrine, it's your job to defend me and the doctrine. Maintenance of the person and the authority. Maintenance of the person is property to support the person in their work. And maintenance of the authority is property to equip. So imagine the difference between paying a soldier and buying his equipment. Maintenance of the office, of the authority, is buying the equipment. And maintenance of the person is paying wages. So in the household, how does that work? You children and wives with your head of house support by building the estate, serve where possible, provide for your parents in old age. That's the maintaining that's owed in the household. So children, heads of house, it's your duty to help to put your children and your wife and any servants you have to profitable employment for the building of the estate. And it is those who are under authority, their job to serve those who are in authority by seeking to help to remove lesser tasks from them to free up their time to perform the higher tasks that only they can perform and then providing for them in old age. Now, preferably, there'd be enough that there's enough for inheritance to their children and their children's children. But it's the case sometimes that people work hard and do not have sufficient because their duties are so large, but they're provided for at the day. And then the children are able to provide. And that's the daily bread that God provides. That's not the ordinary course, but that does happen. The church does this by tithing for the operation of the church. That includes paying for stuff that's needed for teaching, for worship, and for government budgets. Thankfully for us, that should be a lot cheaper than the worship at a lot of services. And then you're going to have the diaconal ministry. And then there's the paying of officers. Those are the operations that the tithe supports. The state has taxes for the operation, paying uh, for the work of justice, watchmen, and just war equipment. So, you know, for justice, you need a courtroom. For watchmen, you need the equipment they're going to go out and do the watching with. And then you have the just war equipment. You have the weapons of warfare and the supplies and so forth. And then there's the pay to those who serve, whether they're officers, watchmen, or warriors, when the service is required. So that maintenance of the person and the authority, I hope that's very clear. That's not how we use language often now. But so fidelity, defense, and maintenance of the person and the authority. Talked about bearing with and covering. Um, 
The fifth commandment is very long. It has lots of applications. Lots to talk about. We're out of time. So we got through the positive duties to superiors. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Courtney. Where um, biblically is the argument, uh, I'm assuming there is one, um, against uh, nobility or the line and the idea of having a royalty because I mean, we do see the idea of a, a royal priesthood and, and that sort of uh, bloodline and obviously I'm not saying that that uh, applies necessarily to the idea of ability but just the idea of a royal and of course we don't have a priesthood but um, well, what, what would be the, the argument against? Yeah so the argument against so first of all you'll see even with the elect even with kings they were elected by the people so there's not an assumed inheritance you have in the proper establishing of it you have the acclamation of the people for a king so it's not simply a matter of inheritance when you have nobility or royalty in terms of the household you end up turning the public office into the property the inheritable property of the household sphere so you blend the two covenantal spheres so if it's just I'm king and my son inherits it I'm blending the spheres, and those are, that's not the authority of the household. And so it is the state that has that, and there's a proper methodology for selection. Um, and so that methodology for selection is supposed to be that there is an election by the representatives of the people. And so you have the proclamation by the elders of the people or, and the voting of the heads of household. Those are the things that occur. Most constitutional monarchies retain some sort of form of that. The British, for example, have some sort of a ceremonial acclamation. But there's no opportunity for the shouting down. There's no opportunity for saying no. It's just kind of a walking out onto a balcony and a shouting. And they go, that's the acclamation of the people. Accepted, right? So, um, so the, that, that would be those two, those two things. The, the, the approved example that we have. And then we'd also have the definitions of the two spheres. Does that satisfy? No. Thank you. Mr. Jones? Yeah, you mentioned um, in this context, the congregations, the inferiors, the pastors, the superior, right? And in that, you said uh, inferior should be praying for their superiors. So how should we be praying for you in that context? And is that different than in other contexts, you being an equal, a brother in Christ, and us praying for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ? Do those prayers look vastly different? So, thank you. Good question. So, the question is, if um, if congregants are inferiors in station to a pastor, how should they pray for the pastor, me specifically? And then, also, how is that different from the prayers of you and I are hanging out as brothers, enjoying each other's company, talking about stuff? So, um, so in ordinary life, an elder or pastor has no different authority than a brother of the congregation. The only authority that's different is in the public court and in the public worship. Okay, so um, the idea of, of having a vote on that council, and once we have multiple elders, right, there will be a differentiating of the congregational council from the elders council. And so there would be matters that um, are not ordinarily voted on by the men that are currently voted on by the men. So, um, so then the prayer for me as a pastor would be praying for me in my function and then all the things that are necessary for that function. So 
you'd pray for me to do, you know, the teaching and prayer and judgment work I'm supposed to do well. And then you'd pray for me to retain qualification and to, um, you know, and to have my house in good order. And so those kinds of things. So you'd pray. I think the qualification set of, of elders is a great thing that if you use that and you were to pray for me, that list, I would be so grateful. And then as a brother, and we can talk about other things, and in ordinary life, you know, I have no authority to command or whatever, right, a brother in ordinary life. I can, I'm the same as you in that we argue about what the scriptures have to say. And so there's no difference there, but there would be kind of like a, how a child, when they leave their home, are no longer obligated to obey a parent, but there's a duty to honor. So it'd be similar to that. And it'd be... That'd be similar for like an employer and employee in, outside of a work setting, right? Like you have you have employees. Do you expect them to obey you in ordinary life? No. <laughs> but but you do expect them to you know to 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 not treat you the same as they would one of their coworkers if you're their boss in the sense of like showing no difference or not honoring or respecting you. Gotcha. So you're speaking to what we're focusing on. When you're praying in those different mindsets of an inferior or pastor versus an equal to Yeah, so the last part I moved on to think of the added, how you'd think about, but as far as the prayers go, um, yeah, the prayers would be sort of the same way you pray for any brother in, in that. So there's there's kind of, you know, I, the other thing about station is your multiple things, right? I, I, am, I am your brother, I am your pastor, right? For those of you who are you know, covenanted, I'm your pastor. And so, that idea that there's 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 both of those things are a reality, and um, uh, that serves two things. It helps to make it so that I don't usurp place by seeking to exert authority outside of the sphere that I've been given authority in, and helps me to have a right frame of mind. You know that we are like unto each other in every way except for the public office, and you know, but including sin. Whereas Jesus is like unto us in every way except without sin. So um, so those those are the that's the frame of mind. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned about uh, pay to officers. What biblical texts in the New Testament, or do you look at the Old Testament when justifying the pay of officers? I know a lot of people look for Paul and how he continued his tent making to support himself. And I'm not necessarily against the report. I'm just not sure where we justify paying to officers and making it a full-time position. It doesn't have to be full-time. Oh, okay. Um, so, the so there, first of all, it's, there, there's a statement in the New Testament. I don't know the, the location is. If anybody knows, please let me know. That says that uh, those who preach by the gospel should be uh, fed by it. Paul in First Corinthians says that he references a Levitical law about not muzzling the ox while he treads out the grain, and says that if it applies to the ox, how much more so to a man? A worker is worthy of his wages, and then that also would apply to a worker of the gospel. Um, and so, um, the idea that 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 is, I think there are multiple places in the scriptures, but those are, I think the First Corinthians thing is the most plain and easy one to point to. Gotcha. And then, and then with that, do you have a different expectation for a pastor that's being paid and it's his full-time ministry versus somebody that's working and also trying to be a pastor to start a church or whatever? Because they have more time to study and focus and like you said, spend time reading, but if you have another job obligation, you may not be able to get that in depth. 
Yeah, so you recognize the limitations of creatureliness, right? And the more you can free up people's time, good. But, but I'll tell you what, I think one of the great disservices that we have done um, in the church is to, is to try to differentiate between teaching elders and ruling elders. There's no biblical basis for that. And if there are multiple elders and they are sharing in that teaching obligation, one of the, one of the qualifications for office is cosmion, which means that you're well-ordered and your home is well-ordered. One of the basic well-orderings of the home is the economic wherewithal of the home. If you're not able to provide for your home, if you're not effective at managing the labor of your home, then you're not fit to lead. And so that could be, there are some cases where somebody might need full-time employment from the church in order to be sustained while fulfilling the office of an elder. But generally speaking, if you are competent and you have been working and also we put people into the pastorate way before they should be the qualification requires 30 years old jesus waited till he was 30 the levitical priests required to be 30 30 years old gives you time to build some resources and so this idea of seminary going there getting yourself in debt being separated from your local church and then being you know amazoned out to whatever church wants to accept you on prime right that that methodology is not the biblical methodology. And so this thing where instead you have a man being prepared in a local church, being tested over time, being developed, uh, building out uh, a wherewithal economically, and then beginning to serve in some ways where he's stepping in sometimes and preaching sometimes, gradually doing that and getting paid you know, for the particular sermons or you know, the kind of service that they're doing, you know, double honor. You know, double honor is two times the honor that a widow is owed. You know, we're probably not really paying the widows luxuriantly on the subsistence pay that we're helping them out with. And so double honor is double that. Okay? That's the idea. And so that there's this kind of, that depends upon the means of the congregation. But ideally, most of the time, these would be men who are able to manage their estate well and are able to have some wherewithal. Jonathan Edwards didn't get paid for like three years. Well, he managed his farm, and his wife did a lot of that work, and so she was a Proverbs 31 woman. And that wasn't supposed to happen. They cheated him. Okay, but, but they, were, they were fine. So, okay, Mr. Nye. Thank you for the teaching on the reads. Quick question. Replace Brian's first question about um, praying in different contexts for your pastor with, with addressing with titles. Okay, so how do you address with titles in different circumstances versus um, whatever? Okay. So in public, I'm, we're in the general congregation, right? So you walk up to me, you know, calling me Pastor David or Pastor Reese, whatever. That's, that's an honor and way to deal with me while around a bunch of people. We're in my own house and we have a close relationship. Then, you know, I think you just call me David. But the issue is you have a context and there's opportunities to honor. And if you're trying to honor in some particular situation, that's, that's a sign of honor. So I like to make life difficult, so you know my employees have to call me Mr. Reese. People here call me Pastor Reese, and then if you're hanging out in my house, you call me David. And it's really just fun, honestly. This is not even a biblical thing. It's just fun for me to watch, and I'm, I'm kidding. Right? I, I think it's a biblical thing, right? And it, but it's difficult. It's a difficult thing, and I'm trying to apply a cultural norm of the Mr. or the Pastor or whatever, and to do that for spheres, and to that's a part of my effort to build out sphere authority, because there's different authority in different spheres, and mixing them is a big problem. All right, Mr. Marsh. Thank you for teaching. And uh, uh, future, 
Yeah, I'm likely to sin in my office and misuse the authority that I have at some point in time. And if you don't rebuke me for it, you'll all be in sin. I basically guarantee it's going to happen. Because I know me. And the more you get to know me, you're going to find that I disappoint you. Okay? So, and then as far as the incompetence goes, assuming I get in better shape and live a long time, my mind might decline. And maybe I should be honored as somebody who has served well in the past at that point, but not be one who is continuing regular governance. So hopefully never get to the point where you're in a teaching capacity as incompetent. Right, but if I if I continue in that and I hold on to it because that's my tendency, I want to do stuff and I want to get things done. So I pretty much guarantee I'm not gonna have the humility to like leave gracefully when I become incompetent. And I might get better. I might be like be a better human being at some point. But right now, 36-year-old me, like, not ready for that. So, you know, if I become a little bit mentally not sound, right, then that would be something where you go, it's probably not fit to sit on, uh, on courts on a regular basis. And maybe there's still a place for some occasional teaching there because, you know, you have sound patterns and habits of, of, of speaking and doctrines you know well. You can still do that, but you know you just be ready to to deal with the corrections of things that would be muddled there. There might be a place where that's not even fit anymore, right? So it's just you know I'm I'm being I'm speaking in tongue in cheek a little bit, right? I hope that I will be better than that, but I'm trying to be at the same time. It's my duty to make you aware of those things and to build this into the culture, because when I'm dead and gone, I want this to be a glorious bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the concern. We want things to be clear, not ambiguous. That's right. Okay, Mr. Roberts. Could you explain the uh, antinomian? Yeah, so antinomian is anti is against or uh, aping, uh, and namos is law, so being antinomian. So people will say, if you teach that justification is by grace alone through faith alone, and you're saying I could just break all of God's law and still be saved? You don't think God's law is a serious matter. Okay? So, I go, I think God's law is a very serious matter. And I think that it applies in exhaustive detail, with the exception that there are ceremonies that have been transformed and particular things about Israel that are peculiar to Israel as a nation and it is time. But we have to apply all of it, and that when we apply it to the Spirit and to its perfection, that we are breakers of it, and so if justification is by anything more than grace and the instrumentality of faith, then I'm not getting there, and neither are you. And so, that, but people don't like it. They, they, think, they think that that assertion of justification by faith alone is somehow lawless. Mr. Cody? Uh, I'm just jumping on that. Uh, it's, uh, it's hypocrisy, actually. Uh, the antinomian, because if the law is so perfect, um, and is so, there's no way we can keep it. So if it's not by grace, we're, like you said, we're not going to make it. So they actually use it in, in the hypocritical way when they make that argument. That right. It, it's, it's intentionally meant to go way to the left. Right. Yeah, they make the law keepable um, when, they, when they're trying to make the law 
a part of how we're justified and make it keepable. Um, so yeah, and to be clear, you know, like I did not grow up standing when my parents came in the room and I repent of it. Like I dishonored them. You know, like, that's so I'm not trying to pretend like I have done this perfectly. I'm trying to say these things need to happen. And so these are the things that the law teaches us. These are things we're supposed to do. And so let's let's acknowledge our failures if we're failing and let's seek to apply. And so that's that's that. Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Romans 12 and 13 and how much it has to say about lawful authority. I thank you for the work of our forebearers in the faith with the Westminster Assembly and how they put together the larger catechism and the work on the fifth commandment. I ask that you would cause both the men and women to be zealous here for honor. That the men would know that they must act honorably, that they must seek to support honor for others in station, that the women would understand that the men will be much better as men if they if there is a culture of honor, and that you would help us here to teach this to our children, and help them to be spared from the dishonoring culture around, and to imbibe and love the culture of honor. I pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.